Dubomatic with the dub Come, come, fin, ice up your dance all and ice up your club Flinging down some sweet rubber dub Easy squeezy makes no riot yeah, This my sound and we bury that My sound is the cream of the crap Dubmatic Yeah, Dubmatic The original sound Fredrin Dubmatic's live and direct in a place called Toronto, Canada Dubmatic Rancho Calling, calling, Dubmatic Toronto, Canada You come out Big up, big up, big up, Dubmatic Welcome back to another edition of the Basement Sessions. And on this week's show, sadly, we lost Lee Scratch Perry. So I'm going to take the next hour to give a brief look at his life. I mean, spanning six decades, it's impossible to condense into one simple hour. But what I'm going to do is just kind of look at some of the earlier years, right up to the end of the Black Art period, and just some of the key tracks and some of his earlier tracks that you might not be familiar with. So let's kick this off by just giving a quick synopsis of who Lee Perry was. He was born in Kendall, Jamaica in 1936. He passed away, sadly, uh, at the age of 85 in Jamaica, in his home country, because he's been living in Switzerland for at least two or three decades now. But what I want to look at here is his contribution to music as it is today. Without Perry, dub is not dub as we know it. Those experiments of sound, the textures, utilizing the latest piece of gear, pushing old gear to its maximum breaking point, or a chicken would have stalled the evolution of what was to bear fruit from his presence in the studio and musical influence heard around the world, which includes basically all the genres that are so popular today. Hip hop, jungle, electronica, trip hop, dubstep, and a host of other genres that not only incorporated the production and recording techniques, but the ethos of what dub is. But before we do that, let's take a quick look back at how he got started. So when he first started out, this was in the 1950s and he worked as a record seller for Clement Coxon Dodd and his sound system. As that developed, he took on more responsibility at Studio One, the hit factory of the time. So he went on during this period with Clement Dodd to record 30 songs. So what I wanted to do is play one of the earlier ones that I found. It's called Sugar Bag. This is from 1965, and it's a Studio One production. It's a rarity, but you can find it online in compilations and stuff. So let's take a listen right now. Sugar Bag, Lee Perry, 
quarterback from 1965. I'm going to play another one from 1965 that I was not familiar with at all, and I don't think a lot of people are, but what's unique about it, it's one of the first times that sees the pairing of Lee Perry and the Wailers. And in this instance, the Wailers are the background vocals for his song and his singing. The track is Pussy Galore. Of course, leave it to Scratch Perry to slide that in. But also, don't forget, at that same time, you had Pussy Galore and James Bond, who was the lead character. So it was a sly way to get some fun in there and humor and, and sexual references. So let's have a listen to Pussy Galore 1965, The Wailers, Lee Perry right here on the Basement Sessions, and our special look at the legendary Lee Scratch Perry. Sweet, 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 pussy galore. Every man loves pussy galore. What you wear, are you get a surprise? If you are rich and wanna get poor, just fall in love with pussy galore. Then one thing I am sure, you won't be rich anymore. She got charms. Boys, watch her claws. Pussy galore, can leave the door. Before the clock, can strike four. Wanna know what I'm speaking about? Pull the finger, pull the finger, pull the finger. Does she go cheat some more? Does she go cheat some can change a man to a child and crumpy style wanna know what I'm speaking about poor finger poor finger poor as you listen to that track and the sound effects provided by the man himself Lee Scratch Perry that's Pussy Galore from 1965 featuring the Wailers on the background vocals there so now I'm going to move to the point where he's worked for Cox and Dodd for a few years but their relationship during this time was up and down and a little bit turbulent so he left and not on good terms what those terms were and what happened we're not sure but whatever it was it was enough to propel him to write a song called run for cover was basically an attack song or a diss song however you want to phrase it but it wasn't a good song and if you look at today's environment this is you know really the diss song or the attack song however you want to phrase that it's been going on since the 50s in Jamaican music and this was on sound systems the clash you want to one-up each other the rivalry and you could still hear it in hip-hop and a lot of music today it could be Drake versus Yeezy or whomever it's part of the culture it's part of the music scene and part of the fun now there's times where it's not fun and in this case this wasn't meant as a playful one this is run for cover Lee Perry 1967 Sympathize Boy, I'm gonna leave 
dust till dawn With a right to the head and a left to the cheek Boy, I'm going to knock you down With a right to the head and a left to the cheek I'm gonna keep the pressure on Cover 1967, Lee Perry's diss or attack song on Clement Coxon Dodd from Studio One. Now, here's the irony. He had a battle and a financial falling out with Coxon Dodd. Well, he's been with Joe Gibbs for about a year. And what happens? The same issue. And this was rampant in the industry. I mean, I read the book in a wonderful book called Bass Culture. It's definitely worth a read because it gives you an in-depth look at the scene at the business, the studio side. And a lot of these musicians were paid maybe 25 pounds once, forever. And that's just the way it was. That was part of the industry. And it wasn't just relegated to Jamaica. This was rampant across the music industry on a whole. You might write a song, get paid once, and the next thing you know, it comes out and somebody else's name is on the credits and owns the publishing. This brings us back to now. So he leaves Joe Gibbs forms his own Upsetter Records label in 1968, and the first song he comes out with is People Funny Boy, which is also the title of David Katz's great book about Lee Perry. So now what he's doing, it's an attack song against Joe Gibbs. So we had the one for Cox and Dog, Joe Gibbs, you can see there's an issue of not getting paid, and he's putting them on notice and letting people know about what's going on. Now, there's a couple things that make this song very unique. Not only did it sell 60,000 copies when it came out, it's also credited as one of the very first songs in Jamaica that, to use a sample, The Crying Baby, which you'll hear right off the top of the song. The second one is that it's really one of the kind of first songs that they claim is more reggified. It's more where you're starting to hear the reggae. It's that transition from rock steady to reggae. Now, Larry Marshall's track, Nanny Goat, has been considered the first reggae one because it has the skank in there like it is now. But this is kind of around that same time. So let's take a listen to People Funny Boy right here on the Basement Sessions with Dub Maddox and our look at Lee Scratch Perry. <laughs> Remember that 
68, People Funny Boy, Lee Scratch Perry. He's left Joe Gibbs. He's left Cox and Dodd. Now he's on his own with the Upsetters on the Upsetters label. And so I want to talk about the band and who was in this band that kind of formed the nucleus of his sound during these years. And that band included guitarist Alva Lewis, organist Glenn Adams, and brothers Aston Family Man Barrett and Carlton Barrett, who of course are the backbone not only of the Upsetters band, but the Whalers band for the future. So before we get to that, though, let's look at what he was doing. This is Lee Scratch Perry I'm talking about. And he went on a string of like spaghetti Western themed albums. And this is a track called Return of Django, which hit number five in the UK in November of 1969. And then after that, he's got Clint Eastwood, The Good, The Bad and The Upsetters and some others. But first, let's take a listen to The Upsetters, Return of the Django, Basement Sessions. So there's a few songs from Lee Scratch Perry going from 1965 to 1969. And during that time, he's recording with the Whalers, which I'll play soon, uh, as well as the Upsetters and his spaghetti Western themed stuff. But this takes us to about 1973, and this seems to be the year when dub became dub. So there's great debate among the dub cognizanti as to who released the first dub album. So what I decided to do is look at four tracks from late 72 and in mainly 1973. It's going to include Herman Chin Loy, Joe Gibbs, Prince Buster, and of course Lee Perry. But I'm going to start with Herman Chin Loy's Aquarius dub. And I think it's interesting to note that on each of these tracks, the word dub is included. Let's have a listen to Herman's dub track, Aquarius dub, right now. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
Herman Lynn Choi's Aquarius dub. Now I'm going to move to 1973's Joe Gibbs' Sadamasagana track. And in this one, you know, you listen to the Hermans, it's pretty basic, it's pretty plain. It's dubby, but not really dubbed. Not as we think of dub today. Joe Gibbs actually adds a little bit more to this. There's a little bit more reverb, not a lot, but enough that it's there and you can tell. He also incorporates a filter, and a filter is basically a way to sweep the frequency range. And the frequency is like what you hear. Like if you hear a bass sound, that's a low frequency. If you hear a hi-hat, that's a high frequency. And in the song, you'll kind of hear things sound muddy or they sound high, and that's using a filter. So let's have a listen to Sada Masagana from 1973, Joe Gibbs. <laughs> Sadamasagana. So we've gone through. So we've gone through to Joe Gibbs Sadamasagana, and on that one you could hear some reverb, and of course the frequencies being swept, going muddy, light, nice. And before that, on Herman's track, it's more of just kind of rhythm track, but with a little, little maybe some slight dub elements. Now I take us to Prince Buster's "The Message" dubwise, but this goes back to late 1972. And this one has all the hallmarks of dub as we know it. It's got the sparse instrumentation, which means basically a lot of drum and bass. The drum and bass sweeping in and out, coming in and out. It's got some echo, some reverb, and some effects. So this is like next level, except for it's probably about six months to a year before the first two. Let's take a listen to Prince Buster, The Message Dubwise. Now this had to be for Prince Buster feel. Thank you. 
some good dub flute and you are good to go that's prince buster's the message dub wise so now we've kind of seen the evolution even though prince buster was probably about six months to a year before we've heard herman's aquarius dub joe gibbs satamasagana his dub version and prince buster's the message dub wise now we come to lee scratch perry and the iconic album blackboard jungle dub so this was released in 1973 under upsetters 14 dub there was only 300 copies pressed of that version you imagine having it now? Now what sets this one apart from the others, it's the very first stereo dub album. And when you listen to it, you're going to hear things in your left ear and in your right ear. And of course, there's some echo and experimentation, but it's pretty straightforward. And when you listen to it, some of it's a little jarring because generally when you have, you know, instruments coming in and out, you're adding some reverb or some echo to kind of smooth out those transitions. In this, there's none. It just comes in and it goes, but it is part of the core element of what makes dub dub. Let's have a listen to Blackboard Jungle's Dub to Africa, Lee Scratch Perry. Dub to Africa from Blackboard Jungle 1973, Lee Scratch Perry. So now you've heard four tracks with the word dub in them. Well, Satamascana doesn't actually have dub, but it's it's a dub track. So you've heard Herman's Aquarius dub, Joe Gibbs, Satamascana, Prince Buster's The Message dub wise, Blackboard Jungle 
dubbed to Africa. Now, what's interesting, I think if you put them all together, you would have dub as we know it today, like a King Tubby dub or a later Scratch Perry dub uh, or dubs that, you know, what dub is where there's a lot of reverb, there's a lot of echo, there's phasers, there's effects coming in and out. But this seems like an amalgamation of all of it, but split into four different tracks because they each have something unique and identifiable that's different from the other. But an interesting look at some of these original and an, but an interesting look at some of these early dub tracks. And of course, dub would go on to become what it is today and influence so many different genres. Moving back to now 1972, though, you know, a little 70, 72. This is when Lee Scratch Perry is working with the Whalers, when it's the Whalers, not Bob Marley and the Whalers, the Whalers. And what is cool about this, it wasn't Lee Scratch Perry going to the Whalers and saying, hey, let's work together. It was the other way around. The Whalers had approached Lee and wanted him to produce their albums because he had a style, he had a sound, and they'd known each other because they worked on that track from 1965 where they were the background vocalists. So now we're working at Randy's and they go into their sessions there and during these sessions they're able to produce two albums worth of materials. And what makes these albums unique is the way that Lee and what makes these albums unique is the way that Lee Scratch Perry recorded them and produced the songs. They're very sparse. There's only drums, bass, guitar, organs, and vocals. There's no horns. There's no embellishments. And it's also haunting and mystical and not spiritual at the same time because it's raw. And that's what he was going for. He didn't want to ape all the sounds that were coming out of America and try to sound like everybody else. They wanted their own sound and they got it. Let's have a listen to Soul Rebel right here on The Basement Sessions with Dub Maddox and our look at Lee Scratch Perry.
one of the most identifiable harmony groups you're going to hear, especially in reggae. So now we move on to 1973. These are the Black Ark years for which Lee Perry steps into his own front and center with his own studio and control of how records are made and demolishing all constraints that existed of production techniques, sound effects, and anything else you could possibly think of. And conveniently, it was located behind his family's home in the Washington Gardens neighborhood of Kingston, Jamaica. Now, the list of records and artists he worked with is far too extensive for this one hour period, but it does include, but it does include Junior Biles, The Congos, Junior Mervin, Max Romeo, Mighty Diamonds, The Heptones, Augustus Pablo, and on and on. So from 73 to 79, it was full speed ahead. He had recorded with just nonstop with so many artists. And as time went on, things got a little odder. He got a little odder and eccentricities got a little odder, but we'll get to that a little bit later because I want to start with one of the classics and all three of these are classics. They're still played on most sound systems around the world to this day. Starting with Max Romeo, Chase the Devil. Here we go. Lucifer, son of the morning, I'm gonna chase you out of earth. loved to experiment and that went on and on in fact i read an article with daniel boyles who worked with him on a bunch of different albums uh, over the last 10 years in london and he's talking about one of the first times he worked with lee perry and trying to get used to how to work with him and how lee perry liked to work and he says at one moment he turns around and lee perry's gone then he shows back up he dug up a plant and said to him we need to hang this on the wall so he did 
When Lee left, he had to cover it up with a poster so his wife didn't see. If you go up onto YouTube, you'll find some great videos of him from the late 70s and in the 80s and the 90s. And just listen to him talk. He's a character, man. And you know he's got a lot of eccentricities. But musically speaking, he's got some interesting techniques that he developed along the way that became and formed the basis of a lot of his tracks. One of the classic things that he did was that he actually buried a microphone at the base of a palm tree and thumped it rhythmically to produce a mystifying bass drum effect. He also surrounded the drum booth in the Black Ark Studios with chicken wire because it would give you a different kind of sound. I love that, the experimentation. So the next track I'm going to play is another classic that you all know. It was recorded by The Clash because Joe Strummer loved this song. This is Junior Mervin, Police and Thieves. Right here on the Basement Sessions and our look at Lee Scratch Perry. <laughs> and thieves so let's talk about his spiritual side in further pursuit of his spiritual side perry was known for his eccentric and superstitious behavior during production sessions 
He would often bless his recording equipment with mystical invocations, blow ganja smoke onto his tapes while recording, bury unprotected tapes in the soil outside of his studio, and surround himself with burning candles and incense whose wax and dust remnants were allowed to infest his electronic recording equipment. He would also spray tapes with a variety of fluids, including urine, blood, and whiskey, ostensibly to enhance their spiritual properties. There's no telling what might work or bring that mojo to the music that you're looking for. But whatever it was, his sound at the Black Ark was extremely distinct, and you know it when you hear it. As you'll know when you listen to this next track, this was the last album he worked with this group on, and that group is the Congos in their album, Heart of the Congos. The track I'm going to play, Fisherman. It's so good, and it still resonates to this day. Have a listen right now. Basement Sessions, Dubmatics.
1977. He goes on recording some other albums, but by 1979, Lee Perry burned down the Black Ark Studios. Now, it's been related by several family members that the studio, in fact, caught fire in 1983 after an ill-fated attempt to rebuild it, the result of an electrical accident. More often not, Perry has claimed that he personally destroyed the Black Ark due to unclean spirits. But then there's also this story, that he had been and was being blackmailed by gangsters who wanted a cut of his profits which is probably most likely the case. As he'd mentioned, and as I've read numerous times, that as the Black Ark grew in popularity and his fame, more and more people would hang out in the yard and just ask for money and want stuff and take advantage of him. So it makes sense that most likely if he's being blackmailed, he's got all these people around his house always wanting something that the solution for him at the time, and the only solution possibly that he could think of, was simply to burn it down. If that's the case, we may never know for sure, but but that seems to be the most likely. I hope you enjoyed this short look at Lee Scratch Perry and his life. It's actually about seven decades if you include his record running for Cox and Dodd in the 50s. There's much more that could be said musically and shared, and maybe at some point I'll do a part two, because really there's a, there's a period in the 80s where he heads over to London and he's just... He's drinking way too much, and it's the break after Black Ark. He needed some headspace just to get away, but then he comes back and he has a long, prolific career afterwards. But taking us out, one of his other classic tracks, Mikey Dread, Dread at the Control. I'll see you again next week. Take care. This is an Come to quake up the week plan. Tell us if a play Jump on.